Let me ask you a question. Do you love Jesus? Now there's a question. And a question I guess we don't ask or get asked that often. Do you love Jesus? Not do you believe in him, not do you trust him, not do you follow him, but do you love him? Do you love Jesus? I think this story in Luke 7, uh, one of its distinct features is love, love for Jesus. It comes in a section of Luke's Gospel all about how people respond to Jesus. And in this story, the, the woman that we encounter is kind of set up as a model example of someone responding to Jesus. And the thing that she is commended for is her love. Jesus says at the end that your faith has saved you, go in peace. She has faith in Jesus, but the thing she's really honoured for is the love that she demonstrates. So do we love Jesus as this woman did? Uh, let me remind you of the story. Uh, Jesus gets invited to a, a dinner party and uh, he's there reclining at the table. And then the host's worst nightmare happens. The gate crasher arrives. And not just anyone, uh, no, it's a sinful woman. Uh, which could be a polite way of Luke saying that she's the local prostitute. If Simon the host had hoped that she was just going to kind of stand in the corner and not draw too much attention to herself, no such luck. She goes straight up to Jesus, the guest of honour, and starts bawling her eyes out, uh, weeping, and her tears wet his feet. She then leans over, starts kind of wiping his feet with her hair. She can't stop kissing his feet, and then she cracks open uh, a bottle of Calvin Klein obsession and pours that all over his feet as well. To the host's horror, Jesus does nothing to resist uh, what uh, one preacher has described as uh, a display of emotional incontinence. <laughs> and no doubt, to the surprise of everyone present, at the end of the story, this woman, far from being rebuked and told off for what she's done, she's honoured and commended, while Simon, the upright Pharisee and host, is humbled. The heart of the story, I think, is verse 47, where Jesus says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And that statement is explained by uh, the little parable, the story that Jesus tells in verses 41 and 42. Uh, very simple story. Two people, two debtors, they both owe money to a money lender. One owes a large amount, the other owes a small amount. But neither of them can repay their debts. And both of them, remarkably, receive mercy as the money lender forgives, cancels the debts of both people. Simon answers Jesus' question correctly by saying uh, that the one who had been forgiven the most would love the money lender the most. And Jesus then applies that little story to the situation at hand as he contrasts the woman and Simon and the way that they relate to him. So he goes through three things, doesn't he? At Simon, uh, contrary to kind of 
the custom and accepted customs of hospitality, failed to provide water for Jesus to wash his feet. The woman has washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Simon, again, contrary to the custom, failed to greet Jesus with a kiss, probably a kiss on the cheek. This woman hasn't stopped kissing Jesus' feet, such is her adoration for him. Simon, again, uh, failed in his duty and hospitality, didn't provide oil for Jesus' head, something to do with the dry uh, environment and kind of cracking skin. The woman, not just oil, but perfume, probably her most expensive, most valuable possession. She cracks it open and pours it all over Jesus' feet. I think we see something in this woman's response to Jesus about the nature of love. Certainly this woman's love is, is not just a private thing, it's not just I love Jesus in my heart, uh, but you know, I'm not really loud in public about it. Uh, no, this woman's love is demonstrated in action, isn't it? It's a public thing, it's a costly thing, it's an act of service for Jesus. And I think uh, we see in the very next verses, if your Bible's open, at the beginning of chapter 8, something of the same response to Jesus. We're told that Jesus is travelling around, his uh, 12 disciples are with him, but also some women. And these women include both uh, respectable women, the wife of the manager of Herod's household, Joanne, uh, but also people like Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. But these women are supporting Jesus, providing for uh, his needs and the disciples' needs. Their, their service of Jesus is practical, it's costly, it's supporting Jesus in his mission. They had received from Jesus and now respond in love and service, just like this woman. But the conclusion of this story, I think the heart of it, and what we need to grasp, is that the woman's extravagant love demonstrated that she had received extravagant forgiveness. In contrast, Simon's reserved approach to Jesus shows that he has little experience of forgiveness, if at all. Probably, like the Pharisee that Jesus talked about in his parable later in Luke chapter 18, Simon feels confident in his own goodness, his own self-righteousness. He doesn't see that he has any need of forgiveness. He doesn't see he has any need of Jesus. And so, doesn't love Jesus in response. This story highlights a theme that runs right through the Gospel, that it is the broken and the needy who are most ready to receive Jesus. They're the ones who see and recognize their need of Him, and they're the ones who respond with faith and love. While it's the self-righteous who think that they're all right as they are, and don't need to come to Jesus. So back to our original question, do you love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? Big love, little love, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate it? 
This story shows us, doesn't it, that how much we love Jesus will be in direct correlation to how much we know we've been forgiven by Jesus. How much we love Jesus will be in direct correlation to how much we know we've been forgiven by him. So there's a second question to consider, isn't there? How much have you been forgiven? How great is the debt of your sin that Jesus has forgiven I asked that question not so that we would wallow in guilt and self-loathing. If we've come to Jesus put our faith in Him, then we can be absolutely assured, like this woman was, our sin is forgiven. But if our love for Jesus correlates to how great our debt of sin is, then we need to come to terms. We need to get to grips with how great that debt of sin that's been forgiven really is. So what would you say? How great is your debt of sin? If you, if you did a kind of spiritual audit, went back to your spiritual account with God and tried to tally up how great your sin is, what would you say? If you say, my debt of sin is so-so, nothing special, then can you see your love for Jesus will probably be so-so? If you see your sin as pretty average, then your love for Jesus will probably be pretty average. If you see the debt of your sin as huge, unpayable, then probably your love for Jesus will be huge and extravagant, like this woman's was. So if we want to love Jesus more, and I take it, I hope we do, this story points to how, one way at least, that we can grow that love. We need to cultivate, don't we, a greater sense of how much we've been forgiven. How, how do we do that? Well, I think it is by kind of taking a spiritual audit, going back to our spiritual accounts. You know, I don't know how closely you keep tabs on your bank account. Uh, I'm atrocious. And sometimes I kind of look at my account and maybe I think, oh my goodness, I didn't realise we had so little in the, in the bank. And I look back through the statement and think, I don't remember spending money there. Uh, where did that come from? And then, oh no, yeah, that is right. Maybe we need to do the same thing, come back to uh, take a fresh look at our spiritual accounts to see the dead of our sin. Uh, we're going to pray a confession prayer. Which I, can you get that up on the screen, right? Um, before we celebrate communion, we're going to pray this prayer for a bit familiar to you. But I think it's helpful to, to think through the, the true nature of our sin. Uh, it says, uh, Merciful God, our Maker and our Judge, we've sinned against you. So to, to get a true view of our sin, we, we need to see who we've sinned against. The merciful God, our Maker and our Judge. You know, in all other relationships, when we wrong someone, when we offend them, there's always some imperfection in them that we can point to as well. You know, yes, I, you know, I, I said something mean to my friends, but they've been late to uh, to meet with me the last five months. 
I'm not explaining this very well, but do, do you get the point? In our relationships with other people, there's always some imperfection in them. They, I'm not the only guilty party, they are too. And so, in a way, I can excuse or justify my sin against them because, well, they're not perfect. Different with God, isn't it? That there is no imperfection in him. He's done nothing that warrants our sinning against him. Quite the opposite. He's been perfectly merciful and kind and faithful and loving. He's the God who graciously gives us every breath that we breathe and every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is no excuse or justification at all for even the slightest sin or offence against him. So we need to consider who we've sinned against. That makes our sin great, doesn't it? Uh, then we need to consider the breadth of our sin. Uh, we say in the prayer, Okay, it's a different prayer. That's alright. Um, yes, great. We've sinned against you in thought, word and deed. It's not just our actions, not just the things that we do. It's the things that we've said and it's our thoughts as well. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Not just murder, but hateful thoughts towards other people. Not just the act of adultery, but lustful longing. Make us guilty. Make us condemned, worthy of condemnation. And it's not just the wrong things we've done, it's the good things we've not done. Uh, in technical terms, we talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. Things that we've done to break God's law, but also the ways that we've failed to keep God's law. And remember what Jesus said about the, the greatest, the most important commandments. To love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Who amongst us can say that we've kept that one great command? And then to love our neighbour as ourselves. I reckon the main reason we don't feel the greatness of our sin is we easily, we, we kind of change the standard that we're measuring ourselves against, don't we? We measure ourselves against other people. And we can always find other people who've sinned in more obvious ways or greater ways than we have. And our hearts instinctively latch onto that so that we can feel good about ourselves and say, oh, we're not as bad as them. Coming to Jesus means adopting a new measure of holiness to take on his standards of moral behaviour and realising that against that, we all feel far short. But perhaps the thing that reveals the seriousness of us in most clearly is the cross. If we believe that Jesus died for our sins, that on the cross he was bearing the punishment that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve, then looking at the cross, see, seeing the suffering of Jesus, what he endured, well that's going to help us to have a, a, a true estimation of the seriousness, the, the greatness of our sin. Let me read to you from near the end of Luke's Gospel, uh, from chapter 22, uh, where Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and he asks them to pray that they won't fall into temptation. Then, 
We're told he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And then with these words that cut to the heart. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In that verse, we, we see a picture of someone in extreme emotional torture. I can't imagine what would bring someone, the, the depth of anguish that would bring someone to sweat drops of blood. Yet, this is the position Jesus was in as he contemplated the cross and the fact that he's about to drink this cup, this cup of suffering, the, the cup of God's anger that our sin deserves. As he looks ahead to what he's about to suffer, he's in anguish. How great. That suffering must be how great our sin. John starts in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, says this, Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not to feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, complacency, they blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. For if there was no way by which the righteous God could forgive our sin except that he should bear it himself in Christ, it must be serious indeed. It's only when we see this that stripped of our self-righteousness we're ready to put our trust in Jesus as the Saviour we urgently need. And we might add, only when we see this and we come to Jesus and respond, uh, will our love for him be motivated, birthed, and grow as a shoot. So how great is the debt of your sin? You know, if, if there was a spiritual statement of your debt, your sins, written out, there would be enough to plaster this room in very small print, wouldn't it? And imagine coming into imagine that being the case. Imagine all of us being able to walk around and see your sins, your statement before God, plastered on the walls of this room. But then imagine walking around and looking closely at those statements and seeing that over each one, every transgression, every omission of the life of cruelty, stamped in red, the word forgiven. Imagine spending a bit of time thinking about that, taking stock of your debt, taking in afresh again the forgiveness that Jesus has secured at the cross. Imagine the joy, the, the freedom. Imagine the love that would grow in your heart. Imagine the service that you would be motivated to live out. We're not going to sing it today, although we may try to play it during the communion. But that great thing, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I cannot but last. I pour contempt on all my pride, all my self-righteousness, all my confidence in myself. 
get rid of that. Jesus, we thank you for this story. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for this woman and the model response that she demonstrates for us. We pray that we would be like her, that we would know uh, the, the true depths of our sin, that we would know that that debt has been cancelled, forgiven at great cost to yourself as you died in the place on the cross. We pray as we celebrate communion in, in a moment, you would um, renew in us a sense of gratitude and love for you, our wonderful Saviour. We, we pray, pray a bold, a difficult, daring prayer that you would uh, open our eyes to our sin, not to bring us to a position of guilt and self-hatred, but that we might more greatly appreciate all that you've done for us in coming to live the life we could never live and die the death we deserve to die. We pray this for your glory's sake.